great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up in just a few minutes, we're in the midst of open enrollment season for healthcare. I've got a special warning for you about people getting scammed with fake insurance. And coming up yet later, there's a new theory that you should start saving for a kid's college before you've even had a kid. (laughs) That's how paranoid people are about college costs. I'm going to tell you how that's even possible to do and who should consider that, if anybody. I want to talk right now about something that was very popular after the housing bust, and that is people running out there and buying up failed properties. Homes that have been foreclosed, neighborhoods that were heavily abandoned, and people had what, uh, in the time of hardship, so many people experienced. There were others who were able to create a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get investment property at a very low price. And so I'm asked a lot now, is there still room in the marketplace with how home values have risen in many places in the country for you to be an owner of investment property, of rental property. And it is much harder now, but still doable. I have actually reduced the number of rental properties I have down to three. And I used to have quite a few more. I had have seven. Anyway, I'm down to three. And I took advantage of the run-up in values to reduce the portfolio I had of rental properties. And that's because of the stage of life I'm at. But producer Joel, who is 34 now, has been buying property all along, even as property values have risen. And you bought your first property in what year? 2009. So you were 25 years old. 26. 26. Yep. You bought your first. And no, tw- no, you're right. 25. 25. Thank <laughs> you. I can count better than you. <laughs> but you now have a total of how many properties? How many rental units? Uh, three single family homes and one duplex. So you have five rentals. Yep. And you've been buying even through the recovery. Yeah, and and that's interesting. I feel like there are a lot of people that have that question as home prices recover. Well, isn't this a time for me to sit on the sidelines and not look into buying rental properties? And and I think for people that don't know what they're doing, that they're probably it, there's probably some truth to that. But for people that do uh, know what they're doing, have researched, or maybe have already have a rental property or two, I think still, if you are a smart shopper, I think there are deals to be had in any market. And I think there are deals to be had in a market like we're in now as well. Well, let me first set that Joel works in radio, that it's not a high paying profession. (laughs) You didn't come from money. You and your wife share the same values. You've been very good about living below your means. And you have uh, sacrificed things in your own life, the two of you together, and that's a choice you've made to free up money to be able to seize opportunities when they were there for rental properties. And you have a total of five now, right? Right. Five units. And you have bought a rental property 
as recently as the last year. Right, yeah, just within the last few months. So here we are at a time where prices have rebounded heavily. In many places, they're above where they ever were before, even before the bust. And you're having to pay higher interest rates to buy properties now. Does it still make sense for you to be out looking and looking for opportunity? And what do you look for if you still think it's worth not just going to the sidelines. Yeah, so for me, I have to save up every time in order to get to that 25% down payment level, which to me is kind of a magic number that if, if I can't afford that, then there's no point in me buying the property. And so since I literally just bought one a couple of months ago, it's going to take a while for me to kind of get that savings back up to where I have that money for a, a down payment on another rental home. Um, so I'm not looking nearly as actively now. And even on the last purchase a couple months ago, I was looking, but but the deals were, were a lot harder to find, right? In in 2009, 2010, 2011, it's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, it was like super easy to find a, a fairly inexpensive property that you could do well on as a landlord. And now it just it takes a lot of work, and you know, you're hard pressed to find a good deal. So I've been looking, um, and and I found this great duplex, and it met kind of all my parameters. But there weren't very many properties hitting the parameters that I was looking for you know, a, a, a long, over the past year you know, while I was searching. But what's important is one of your parameters is every property you have bought when you were 25 forward has been one that you have been profitable in, cash flow positive from the first month's rent of a tenant. Yeah, that's definitely important to me. And I think it's easy to look at other uh, avenues for making money on a property, in particular, you know, speculating about the value that you're going to get, the equity that you're going to be able to build in that rental home. And I think there's definitely something to be said for buying something that you think is going to appreciate. But on top of that, you want to make sure that your rental property is cash flowing, cash flow positive, because if it's not, I mean, when you get a call about a broken toilet or light fixture or whatever it may be, man, uh, if I'm not making any money every month, like it doesn't get me out of bed to to go fix the issue. And so, the, yeah, if, if I'm so having a property that does cash flow every month, I think is, is really important. And over these nine years, have you had to evict anybody yet? I haven't had to evict anyone. And so I, I think to the the process that you go through when you're screening a tenant is so crucial. And it's the number one step that doesn't take all that long uh, to do it well. But so many people fall down on just a couple of the ways that you can screen a tenant well and a couple of the key things to look for. And if you if you fall down on that thing, uh, on that step of the process, you need to just spend an extra 30 minutes or an hour in the tenant screening because that will save you potentially you know, hours or months of headache further down the road and thousands of dollars in eviction costs. So fortunately, I've not had that problem. Um, and, and I think a lot of it is due to just stringent screening. Well, good for you. And you, as soon as you are able to build that reserve back up, you're out there again? You know it. Do you have a goal of how many properties or is it all about just finding the right deal year by year? Yeah, it's, for me at this point, it's all about finding the right deal in the right place that kind of matches what I'm looking for and, and kind of keeping it close to home. I like to have all my properties nearby that I can easily manage in parts of town that I care about, that I want to see thrive. And uh, it's not necessarily about building this giant empire. It's about having this small stable of properties that I can manage that will eventually one day pay for me to live. 
actually, you're already on your way with that. The tenants are paying off the mortgages on each of these properties. I'm always about diversification. Have you neglected saving money in retirement plans? No, I haven't. Uh, I've I've tried to to save a lot in uh, my 401k and and my Roth every year as well. Um, I haven't been nearly as diligent as I'd like to on my Roth, just because I've prioritized real estate over that at this point. But um, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, I'll be able to put a little more in in the actual retirement accounts away too. And I should point out that you have two young children, and your wife principally works in the home, so you're doing all this on just your low radio salary. Yeah, true. Fantastic. James joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, James. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. You're going to Carnegie Hall. I am. It's actually our sixth trip over the last uh, 20 years. Wow, my great niece just performed at Carnegie Hall. That's outstanding. Very cool. Well, we are trying to raise some funds to pay for the bus to get there. It's already an expensive trip, and I'm trying to help my kids out by getting the bus paid for through uh, funding locally. And I often ask our local businesses to help us out. This year, I'm thinking about doing it with an online funding website. And I was a little disappointed to find out how much they charge for those things. And I wanted to get your opinion on the format, but also on whether there's some cheaper ones. So you're thinking like a you fund me kind of thing? Exactly. So, I mean, they what they do is they allow virtually anybody to put together a campaign and you spread the publicity on social media and email and however you could in your community. And then people go to the GoFundMe page or whatever competitor you would use and they donate the money and then uh, you get a net of, is it, 97% of what they donate? That's correct with the company that you mentioned. Right. So I haven't checked out on the others yet. That's not considered to be a large amount of money to to take out from the fundraising effort. Hmm. Okay. So 97 cents out of every dollar somebody donates towards the bus, going towards the bus is pretty efficient. You know, they have potentially merchant fees and other expenses for running the operation that 3% is within the realm of being reasonable. Okay. How are you going to promote it, though, that to be able to get people to donate to get you the money? Like, how much money is it going to take for the bus? The bus costs around $10,000, uh, give or take. 1000 depending on the year and gas prices. Um, so... Uh, and I don't have to raise every single little bit of it. We do some uh, performing around town and people donate money as well. So it's not like we just have to use this one source. But I'd like to get as much of it as possible through this method. I'm thinking uh, primarily Facebook, but I could still send my letter drive out and just not have the return envelope already pre-stamped. That would save some money. I usually send a letter out with uh, a self-addressed envelope back. But and you give people now, you give people the ability on their phone or on a laptop to right. contribute right then and there, your response rate is almost certainly higher, even if you had a self-addressed stamped envelope included. Oh, okay. Because so pe- people are much more likely today to donate online where it just takes them a second right. than 
the act of pulling out a checkbook and writing a check mm-hmm. stops, I would guess, at least two-thirds of people now are not going to go forward with making a contribution if they have to go through the process of writing a check. <laughs> We've gotten pretty lazy, haven't we? Well, it's just things change over time, and people like to do it differently today. And I hope you're successful with the fundraising and the kids get to take the trip. Today's Clark Rageous moment is like a look back to what used to happen in the bad old days last decade when you were trying to buy health insurance. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous moment. Oh, okay. I got a special warning for you. This is from uh, federal authorities, including uh, federal agencies, the courts, and the rest. There was a con game going on and uh, just a terrible ripoff where people were being marketed what they thought was health insurance, signing up for policies and paying premiums and then when they'd go to the doctor they had nothing people were not buying these individual policies on the state federal exchange the healthcare.gov exchange people were buying them from people marketing them using terms like trump care obamacare using logos of insurers that people know, according to the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, and people were being conned out of huge money. The perpetrators behind this were all about living large. Rolls Royces, Lamborghinis, private jets, gambling in Vegas, oceanfront condos, a million dollars in jewelry, on and on and on. And all these people who thought they had health insurance had nothing. I need for you to know a couple of warning signs here. One, if you don't buy on healthcare.gov during open enrollment, who knows if you're dealing with a true legitimate insurer. If you don't want to buy on healthcare.gov and you're looking outside of that, And somebody doesn't, in this case, nobody was being provided with actual policy documents. And they'd ask for them, they'd be told, oh, we'll send you those. Big warning sign. They weren't licensed to sell insurance. Another warning sign. And as far as the logo of insurers, if you buy insurance and you're issued an insurance card for an actual insurance company that's well-known and recognized and you are able to go sign up on their portal, you know you have insurance, right? But be very aware and wary because this is a bad movie that's in rerun. Because I'm telling you, this was so much something that I heard about from you last decade, people getting swindled by fake health insurance. Don't let it happen to you is we're in a time that's hard for people to understand exactly how health coverage works. Just remember this, as an individual, you can look at buying through one of the co-ops run by religious organizations. You can look at buying on the healthcare exchange, again, healthcare.gov. 
And you will have, in some states, the ability to buy direct from an insurer for plans that are non-compliant. That means they don't cover pregnancies, they don't cover cancers, they don't cover a lot of illnesses, diabetes, whatever. They're minimal coverage plans. But know the con artists, the fake people are out there. It's ugly. Be careful. Ask the right questions. If it doesn't seem right as you're talking to them, it probably isn't right. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. I saw a headline in the Washington Post and when I saw this, I started laughing. The headline is, should you start saving for college even before your child is born? Gosh, that speaks to how much trauma there is in parents and guilt about how they're ever going to be able to afford a kid's college education, a kid that doesn't even exist yet, but they may plan to have in the future. So it is actually, there's a loophole where you could start saving for a kid before that kid even exists or before you're even pregnant. And it's where you set up a 529 college savings plan, tax-free savings plan, that you own and you name yourself for now as the beneficiary as a placeholder. And then once you have kids, then you can change the name of the beneficiary without any tax implications to the name of that future child. So that's how you can do it. But the question is not can you, the question is as it was written in the Washington Post, should you? No, almost never. Why? Because first, you want to make sure that you're doing all the savings you should for your own financial security in your own life. What does that include? If you have a retirement plan at work, until you're saving the absolute max you can in that plan, don't even think about saving for a child's college, whether that child is born yet or not. Second, if you're eligible, fully fund a Roth IRA for you and your spouse. Again, that comes before saving for a kid's college. If you're HSA eligible, fully fund the HSA plan before you put a dollar aside for a kid's college. Now, that's pretty radical talk from me compared to what you might hear elsewhere. But the reason is there are no scholarship plans for your retirement. You have to fund your retirement. You have to find your rainy day. And so for college, there are so many options. Kid can go in the military and potentially later have college for free or a greatly reduced cost. Kid can go to community college in many states now for all four years and get a college degree potentially for under $10,000 total for four years. Texas was a pioneer in the four-year degree for 10 grand. Florida, very much in the forefront of having community colleges converted to four-year campuses that are commuter schools. No professors doing research. Professors are all in the classroom. Instructors are all in the classroom. Everything's about teaching the student, 
at a low cost. Scholarships, work, so many different ways to pay for it. If you've met all the other financial goals and you want to save in a college savings plan, great. Even if the child you hope to have someday isn't born, yes, you can open that 529. Just make sure it's the right one. There are great guides to setting up a 529 plan and knowing which plans are best to go into because there are a lot of terrible plans. There are some okay plans and then several great plans. I've just updated my ratings on 529 plans and I have a guide that tells you which ones are good, which ones are not, which investments to go into. Others do these as well, Morningstar, Saving for College. The idea is don't let somebody sell you a 529 plan. You always choose the 529 plan and never, 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 not ever, no exceptions ever, buy a 529 plan from a commission salesperson. No way, not any day. Andy is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Andy. Hello, Clark. How are you today? Great, thank you, Andy. You got a question about your son and student loans. Yes, he is considering, um, I guess I am too, because I think he needs a co-signer, but he's considering refinancing his uh, Stafford loans that he currently has. And um, he's looked into a couple companies, and I'm just not sure. I haven't even, you know, considered this before his conversation with me. So we're new at this and looking for some guidance. So I don't recommend taking federal student loans and converting them into refied private loans. Because your son would be giving up a lot of consumer protections that come with a federal student loan that are not available with a private student loan. Are his, okay. uh, are his Staffords at 6.8%? No, they're actually, they range from 3.1 to 4.4. Oh, my goodness. If he were to refi, his rate would go up, not down. Would go up. Okay. Yeah, so okay, he well, definitely, definitely does not want to do anything with them uh, as far as refiing because he's got a sweetheart deal. Okay. And I guess once, if you were to uh, refinance with a private company, they're going to pay off these federal loans, and then you don't have any of those deferment options you may have if in the future you had uh, unemployment come up with, uh, you know, and unable to make a payment. Right. Your son would lose all flexibility. He'd lose the flexibility of, of being able to, as an example, if you lose your job under the revised pay as you earn system, you're considered to be current even if you can't pay anything as long as you document that you're unemployed at that point. And the payments can go up or down based on your income for the life of the loans and how long you have to pay your loans on the federal system. It's based on what job category you're in, but your son is eligible for loan forgiveness of unpaid federal balances typically after 10, 20, or 25 years, depending on his job classification when he took out his loans originally. So it would be be a severe disadvantage. And I know he's probably getting barraged 
with offers <laughs> in the mail saying, hey, refinance your student loans at 2.75% or whatever. Nobody right. gets those rates. Nobody. Okay. okay. Unless they're a teaser rate for a period of time or a variable rate. And so he's got a good thing going. He shouldn't turn it into a bad thing. Okay. Yeah, he just made his his first payment. So, you know, he's looking at any way to save money. And he thought maybe he could do that going private. But I, I told him we would call you and find out the rest of the story. And I truly appreciate all your help and all you do for us. Absolutely. I hope his degree got him a good job for that first paycheck and first payment. He, you know what? Believe it or not, Clark, he has he got an outdoor recreation degree, if you've ever heard of that. I have not. <laughs> and he is using it at an um, adventure boarding school in North Carolina, and he's, uh, he's living a dream. Well, that is great. I hope he loves his experience doing that. He seems to be loving it. And, and again, I appreciate all your help with all the topics. I listen to you every week. Well, well, thank you very much. And I have a big bias. You know, I'll tell you from time to time, Andy, about all the jobs that are in the greatest demand, that are paying the most money, that employers are begging for workers and all that. And sometimes when I get into that, it's like I forget the heart side of things. And the reality is, the most important thing in life is to do what you love. And that's just what your son's doing. Jose is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jose. Hey, hello, Howard. Thank you for taking my call. It's my so, pleasure. All right. So, I'm great show. I've been listening for years. Um, Thank you. So, this is my dilemma. I'll be retiring in probably in six years if I go for the 67 and plus retirement. And I'm debating whether to roll over the pension that I have with the former employer. And the reason I've been losing like $300 a month roughly until I reach that age, actually forever. And the reason I'm going in that direction is because my former non-for-profit employer was bought out by a for-profit employer. And for what I read, Pensions are not secure. I'm, I, I seem to be more concerned with a for-profit than a non-for-profit funded pension. All right. So with a pension, most pensions are insured by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Okay. And if the if the acquiring employer went insolvent and they close their doors and they go bust and they can't meet the pension obligation. In most cases, the pension would come from the semi-governmental Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and it's backed up by the taxpayers. So unless you were getting a monstrously large pension, you would not likely see what's known as a pension haircut if your pension plan at the former place went bust. So I don't know that you need to necessarily worry. Do you have have a pension plan document? Yes, I do. Okay. So in there... All all the terms, yes. Go ahead. All right. So in that document, you likely will have information about the plan itself and how it's administered, uh, what the plan's official name is. And if you go to pbgc.gov, 
for a pension benefit guarantee corporation, yeah, you should be able to talk with PBGC, say that five times, and find out whether or not your plan is one that would be covered by the pension benefit guarantee if the plan did go insolvent. Right. Because okay. usually you're going to get a better benefit if you let the clock run and then once the pension starts, letting them just send you a check every month. Right, right. Yeah, that was that was what I wanted to do. But again, the for-profit <laughs> intervention made me a little nervous. But I, Is I there, Do you have sure reason wait, wait. to believe that they're unstable now? No, actually... What got me worried was that when during the process of the takeover, you know, all that time that they're talking to uh, the politicians and everyone in town about the takeover, they said, we will fund the pension. And it sounded like, why is that even, for me, it sounded like, why is that even a choice? I mean, is that something that <laughs> them to do? <laughs> okay, so what's happening around the country is companies, yeah. especially when one company buys another, if they're a company yeah. without a pension plan and they buy one with, they usually do what's called a pension plan termination, or they uh-huh. will sell the pension plan to an insurance company, and then the insurance company becomes the responsible party to pay you out over the rest of your life. Right. But if right. there's no reason for you to be concerned that they are going to fail financially, I don't know there's... Yeah any real worry you should have, especially if you follow the steps I'm talking about with verifying with the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation that your pension is going to be a protected one. And if it's a protected one, then I would not lose a second sleep about this, wait the six or seven years till you're going to retire, and then start that monthly check coming Every single month for the rest of your life, which is why pensions are so great. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time for Ask Clark. Our producer, Joel, asked me a question that you posted at Clark.com. All right, Sandy wrote in and she said, I know you've discussed this before, but what's your advice on prepaid funeral arrangements? I do not like prepaid funerals, and in fact, I was stopped in a restaurant by two ladies that work for one of the big funeral home chains that were very upset with me about my objection to prepaying for funerals, and my objections are many. Number one, 
the arrangements we think we want for when we pass away someday change with so many people so much over a lifetime. What we might want today, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we may wish for an entirely different thing. Second, over the course of a lifetime, we may expect that we're going to live in a particular location our whole life, but then things happen in life, and we might move somewhere else. And there you paid, you prepaid for a funeral. The national chains say, well, don't worry about it. We'll just transfer the money you paid to another location. But the industry has been unstable with bankruptcies of some of the big chains, and as a result, it is a risky thing for you to prepay. In addition to that, there's another thing I don't want you to prepay for, and that's cemetery plots. I know in my family, there are any of a number of plots that were purchased long ago that will never be used because we've scattered as a family geographically around the country. Some family members even live outside the United States. And in addition, when those cemetery plots were purchased, there was almost nobody in America who chose cremation. Today, in many parts of the United States, 70% of people are cremated. A much better thing to do, rather than to do any kind of pre-purchase or pre-plan, is instead join a local, nonprofit funeral and memorial society. They're located not everywhere in the United States, but most of the United States is covered. You join your local chapter, the one that I'm a member of, I think is $35 one-time fee for a lifetime membership, and some negotiate a price for you for various services. Others have arrangements where you get a discount from list from a funeral home, participating funeral homes price list. It's done different ways. But the most important thing is whatever arrangements you want, however you want things done, communicate that to your loved ones. If you do choose to join a local funeral and memorial society, you can find out what's near you by going to funerals.org. All right, and Bev wrote in, says, a tip from one premium ice cream lover to another, Clark. Have you ever tried Breyers Gelato? It's awesome. Many flavors to choose from, and I think you would love it. I am always willing to accept the challenge to try a new flavor of ice cream, and I will try that one as well. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.